One of the strategies of the civil rights movement at that time was to dramatize to people in Washington who could make changes to laws, confrontations. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, when Dr. Vivian led the teachers to the courthouse on that day in mid-February 1965, the national press was there. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. year when the Reverend C.T. Vivian died at age 95, the world heralded the passing of a civil rights legend. Vivian was a key figure in the early battles of the civil rights movement. He integrated lunch counters in Nashville and beaches in St. Augustine. And on the courthouse steps in Selma, Alabama in 1965, he led people attempting to register to vote into a face-off with Sheriff Jim Clark. The Reverend Vivian's words became a rallying cry. You can turn your back on me, but you cannot turn your back upon the idea of justice. You can turn your back now and you can keep the club in your hand, but you cannot beat down justice. And we will register to vote because as citizens of these United States, we have the right to do it. But in his early years, C.T. Vivian was just a boy in Boonville, Missouri, and then a pastor in Peoria, Illinois. Those formative years finally get their due in the posthumous memoir brought to publication this month. Vivian collaborated in his final years with author Steve Pfeiffer, and their book is called It's in the Action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. And joining us today to talk about it is co-author Steve Pfeiffer. Steve, welcome. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. You know, hearing those words still bring a chill to me. Yeah, such a, a powerful moment. And, and I actually want to start by talking about that moment. Um, what had been going on in Selma that made this particular interaction on the courthouse steps? What made this international news? Well, the reason it became international news was that after about six weeks of various attempts to register various groups of people in Selma, it became clear that uh, Jim Clark, the beefy sheriff, was a real antagonist. And one of the strategies of the civil rights movement at that time was to dramatize to people in Washington who could make changes to laws, and to people in the North who could influence people in Washington to make changes to the laws. Uh, they wanted to, the, the, the members of the movement wanted to create moments where there might be confrontations. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, when Dr. Vivian led the teachers to the courthouse on that day in mid-February 1965, the national press was there, and they captured it on film, just as the Bloody Sunday was captured on film, and just as the Birmingham fire hoses and German shepherds were captured on film. And when those images got sent to the north and were played on national television, 
they made a big difference. Andrew Young said that without that moment being captured, there might not have been a Voting Rights Act of 1965. And it wasn't just the Reverend Vivian's words, although, as you say, those words are so powerful. After he said what he said, Sheriff Clark told the cameramen to turn off their cameras, and then he punched the Reverend Vivian in the face and had him arrested. I understand there is a cameraman who kept recording, and that's why we know how this all turned out. Right, right. And once in jail... Uh, Reverend Vivian was beaten and uh, finally released. And after his release, three days later, he went to Marion, Alabama, a small town nearby Selma, which was another center of the voting rights effort, uh, spoke to a crowd that night. And then after he left and the crowd started a peaceful march, a young man named Jimmy Lee Jackson was shot by a state trooper, and it was actually Jimmy Lee Jackson's shooting that led for the call for the march from Selma to Montgomery. Hmm. So these were some moments that ended up having a huge impact on the course of this struggle. Absolutely. And this idea, this this nonviolence uh, that the Reverend Vivian was able to cling to even when he was taking the blows, what really comes across in your book is that this wasn't just an attitude that he came in with. This was something that he physically trained for and other people physically trained for. Tell us a little bit about what went into this. Right, sir. I'm glad you brought that up. In Nashville in 1960, uh, he had finished his seminary training at American Baptist Theological Seminary, and others there included John Lewis, uh, Diane Nash, Marion Barry, James Bevel, all the kind of luminaries of the civil rights movement, people who would go on to make a huge difference. I I like to call it the the kind of Hamilton moment, like if you (laughs) look at Hamilton the musical and, and Hamilton Marvel's that all these people are in the same place at the same time. Nashville, 1960, was like that. And uh, Dr. Vivian and the others who I mentioned all were trained by a guy named James Lawson, who had uh, gone to India and learned the teachings of Gandhi about nonviolent direct action. And they held workshops on a regular basis to train for the exact kind of confrontations that happened with with Jim Clark and others. They they went through these drills, Sarah, that included, oh, someone would put out a cigarette butt on you, and you and you were taught not to respond in a in a violent in a violent way, just to take it. You were taught how to absorb the blows of of billy clubs mm-hmm. and so forth. So they were always ready when those moments occurred to react in a nonviolent fashion, but they were also taught, and this is very important, never to back down. They could not let evil, oppression, or violence beat them. Hmm. The Reverend Vivian says in your book just how important it was for him to get back up after that punch. That That's part of it there. Exactly. So I want to go back to his boyhood. It's interesting. I think many people know about his role in this struggle, um, but a lot of people don't know that he actually grew up in Boonville, Missouri. That's a town that's just west of Columbia. I think a lot of people, even in St. Louis, don't know about Boonville. What were his early years there like? Well, he lived there until he was about six years old, and he 
The family had um, moved when he was very, very young to a house on Water Street in Boonville, which was right by the Missouri River, a, a very small frame house. And the life that he led there revolved around two things, the church, God of Christ Church in Boonville, and education. Even from a very early age, before school, his mother and particularly his grandmother were very adamant that he get the best education possible, and so he learned to read and and do his math, actually watching the train cars, uh, counting the train cars as they came past the house that they lived on in, in Boonville. Hmm. And uh, it was a, it was a simple life, but the the church played a very important role. And then, as you say, he was only there um, for a few years. The family moved to Illinois, and I I loved the Illinois parts of this book. You really paint such a vivid picture there. But but what had them moving uh, to Illinois in the first place? Well, I, I say that it it was through the church that uh, that they ended up moving. Uh, his grandmother was so involved in the church that she became friends with a, a woman who was in a very abusive relationship and invited that woman to uh, move into their house with them. And then one, one night, the woman's husband uh, broke into their house and set fire to it. Mm. And they escaped the house, fortunately, and then they just decided that was an omen and that it was time to move, and they decided to move to Macomb, Illinois, because, one, the elementary school there was integrated, and, two, there was a university, Western Illinois University, in Macomb, and that would be a place where CT could get a college education. Mm -hmm. They were that forward thinking about the importance of education. So these schools were technically integrated, but reading this memoir, you get a sense it was just barely. Um, tell us about some of the experiences he had there. Sure. Yes, he was one of only a few uh, African-American kids in the school and initially was uh, the target of some bullying tactics. Uh, but he, despite his nonviolent uh action in his later years, he was not afraid to fight back in those days and acquitted himself quite well. But he experienced the, in elementary school, the kind of racial things that are abhorrent, like getting a Valentine's uh, card from someone that had the N-word in it, being addressed in that way. And, uh, that was part of kind of the normal life for him in those early years. And then when he went to uh, Macomb High School, and he graduated in 1942, so he was there from 1938 to 1942, that's where he experienced what I guess you would call institutional racism, where like the, the teacher told him, he should have the lead in the play, but because he was black, he couldn't have it. But if he wanted to paint sets, that was fine. Or where classmates said to him, white classmates said to him, we'd love to have you over to the house, but our parents won't let us. You, you can't come to parties and so forth. So, you know, when, when I asked him 
you know, when did you realize you were black and there was a difference? He said, from the day I was born. Hmm. That's so, it's so difficult. I mean, these, these chapters are vividly written, but they're, they're so hard to read. And yet you can see how they made him the man that he ended up being and, and prepared him for this really pivotal role he was going to play. Do you think he saw the connection there? I, I really do think he saw the connection because he talked about how when he was in eighth grade, he just decided that, you know, fighting wasn't the way to, to do things. And because he was a successful fighter, as I pointed out uh, earlier, and uh, he also uh, decided at that point that the church was going to be very important in, in his continuing life and started teaching Sunday school while he was still in high school. Everyone told him that he had the, the skills to be a fantastic preacher, and indeed, Dr. King eventually called him the greatest preacher who ever lived. What made him such a great preacher, for those of us who will never get the chance to see this live? Yeah, well, he just, he just was a lover of the spoken and written word. The written word in particular, he eventually amassed a collection of over 6,000 books largely on African-American subjects dating all the way back to colonial times. So he was a a very avid reader, and he loved writing, and he just had a a passion that was able to bring what he had learned from from reading into into the church with him when he spoke. We're talking today to Steve Pfeiffer. He is the co-author of C.T. Vivian's memoir. Uh, it's called It's in the Action, Memories of a Nonviolent Warrior. And this memoir has been published posthumously. Uh, the Reverend Vivian died last July. Uh, he made it all the way to 95. I believe he almost made it to 96. Is, is that right, Steve? Twelve more days. Twelve more days. Okay. So he, he lived a long time. And as you say, he loved books, and, and he collected 6,000 volumes of African-American literature. I'm curious why he never wrote a memoir before this. Did you talk about that? Right. I talked to uh, the family about that as well as him. And it, he was, Sarah, he was a very humble man. He's not, his name might not be as familiar to some of your listeners as some of the other names of the iconic civil rights leaders, but he was just as important. But he never, he never sought the limelight. And also, he was an incredibly busy man. Hmm. Even after the movement ended in the South, he came north here. I'm in the Chicago area. He was here for four years from 1966 to 1970, uh, working with uh, African Americans to get them better union jobs, training ministers to uh, fight the next civil rights battles in the North. And then he was a visionary. He created the program that uh, is now called Upward Bound, Hmm. and he created one of the first remote learning uh, systems called Seminary Without Walls, where the students didn't have to come to the campus to learn until they took their exams. So that was like 30 or 40 years. And then again, and then also, he created in 1979 one of the first groups 
uh, the Center for Democratic Renewal, to, uh, to combat white supremacy. So this was a, a, a man who did not seek the limelight, but was always, as the title of the book says, in action. So he just never sat down and, and wrote a memoir. And it's really, in some ways, a shame because you know, to wait till you're in your 90s mm-hmm. when your memories may not be quite as strong as they were at an earlier age uh, compromises an ability to, uh, to to write a memoir. But fortunately, there's so much written about him, so much of him captured on film and previous interviews that we were really able to revisit that to to put the book together. And it was his family that approached you to co-author this memoir. Um, How were you on their radar? Well, I had uh, interviewed Dr. Vivian extensively for another book about the civil rights movement called Jimmy Lee and James that I wrote and was published in 2015. And that dealt with the uh, voting rights effort in Selma and Marion in 1965, and we had hit it off, and we had actually talked about doing uh, a memoir at that time, but it, it just never materialized. So a few years later, when the city of Atlanta announced that it was creating a multi-purpose park and that one of the buildings in the park was going to be the C.T. Vivian Library, that was going to house that 6,000-volume collection that you previously referenced, uh, the family decided uh, we need to get Dad's words you know, down on paper so that at least people who come to the library uh, will, will know more about him. But, of course, we all decided that more than just those people who come to the library need to know about the life of C.T. Vivian, the more people who know about the life of C.T. Vivian, the better this world will be. Hmm. And so this book is now something you don't have to go to this uh, future uh, center in order to get this. We've got a link on our website for those who are interested in reading this story. There's so many good things in here. Um, Steve, one of the things that really struck me is that even at the end, after all these amazing um, experiences that he'd had and all of the things that he changed about American history, he still thought of Macomb, Illinois as his home. This is this tiny town that that his parents moved to and and he grew up in. Um, Do you think he had good memories of his time back in this place that that really had kind of a fraught environment in some ways. Right. He uh, used to say that when people asked him where he was from, and he would say Illinois, they assumed Chicago. But then he would have to educate them and tell them about Macomb, and they would think, oh, that's too bad. And he would say, no, there were some bad things there, but there were some some wonderful things there as well. Because he had a lot of he had a lot of support from his white contemporaries there, both in the high school and then when he was at Western Illinois. The institutions weren't as friendly to him. But, uh, Sarah, when, when he was really on his deathbed, his daughter uh, Denise told me that uh, as, as he was in his you know, final hours, he said, I, I just I loved home so much. And she said, you know, they'd lived in so many places. And there have been so many stops along the, the civil rights battlegrounds. She said, which home? And he said, Macomb. Hmm. 
So this remarkable life, you really need to read the book. It's in the action. Steve, in our final minute here, what would you want people to take from C.T. Vivian's life? Well, I, I think that uh, the title really says it all, that you can be a thinker, you can be a writer, you can be a speaker, but you have to translate those words or those thoughts into action to really make a difference. You can't be sitting back and watching others or wringing your hands. You really have to get out there and make a difference. Hmm. And that is something that Reverend C.T. Vivian certainly did. This book makes it so clear. Steve Pfeiffer, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Sarah. We've got a link on our website if you want to get a copy of that book for yourself. Our website is stlpublicradio.org. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.